Coming up next, the booketing reads, let me just check our Patreon. Shakespeare! Hey! <laughs> oh! Yay! <Suckers>. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, welcome to the booketing. Yes, that's right. It's time for Shakespeare time. I'm not time happy with it all. Yeah, time, huh? I'm not happy with that. How that came out at all? Is anybody happy with that? Brandon, you happy? No, with that? I'm not happy with that at all. Nathan, Jake, you happy with that? No, it sounds well, a little aggressive. You know what I'm happy with is what? doing another podcast with you guys. Coming back, as it were, from the dead after the ladies took over. Hey, they did a nice job. They did a really good job, guys. Yeah. I'm Nathan Alberson, humble and obedient host. That's Brandon Chastine. Hey. Scholar who's a baller of reading. I am. I'm reading right now. Brandon, you're wearing a button-up shirt. Checkered. is made out of down. Is that what you're saying? No, it's made out it's of duck feathers? Down. Like it's button, and then it's made out of down. It's like a button-up shirt. Yes, I'm wearing a, a feather made shirt. Out of, made out of feathers. True or false, the only member of the bookening who's come in with his shirt buttoned, buttons misaligned in the last year is Nathan Alberson, who insists that he knows the proper way. And it's it could the be true. Up. You got Jake Menzel here? Yep, I'm here. Wearing a stylish white hoodie. Wearing the stylish white hoodie. Hey, we'd love to be talking about the horse and his boy, and I don't want to be passive aggressive about this. We love talking about Shakespeare. Some of our best friends are Shakespeare. Are Shakespeare. Yeah. Old Billy S. The we Billy stands for William. Up. He's right here. He's right here. Hi, Brandon. It's me, Shakespeare. <laughs> we beat C.S. Lewis over the head with the shin bone, in fact. With the shin bone of Shakespeare. <laughs> to be or not to be, that's the question. That's a reference for Old first season fans. Season one So if fans. you go back to season one, yep. you get that reference and we love you. And you know what else you get? You get a much more tight-knit audio, not more tight-knit in terms of friendship, but you get the sound of us being in a cramped little coffin together, which is where we used to record. <laughs> it was very intimate. It was yep. basically a coffin, that's true. Now, I wish, I wish with all my heart, Jake, I wish with the aorta, with the, yeah. what are some other parts of the heart? The ventricle. The ventricles. <laughs> I wish that we were reading chambers. We, you have chambers. I wish with all the chambers of that pumping organ that you call a the heart. Pericardium. I wish with the pericardium. I wish with the cardium. I wish with everything. I wish that we could do the horse and his boy. <laughs> but you should ask not what a podcast does for its country, but ask what a country does for its podcast. Can I just do the rest of this with no, my, my terrible John, yeah. John right. F. Kennedy? Okay, guys, listen, listen so up. Listen I, wish, up. I wish we could have done The Horse and His Boy. I want to get back to C.S. Lewis as quick as possible. We had a, I really enjoyed those episodes. We had a big time. Listen, <coughs> we know that things are hard for people right now. We had a long time, big time supporter tell us they had serious medical bills pop up mm -hmm. and insurance problems and they needed to drop. And if we wanted to broadcast her name as a person responsible for costing everybody else C.S. Lewis, uh, we could, but that she was very sorry and looked forward to the day when she could uh, start supporting us again. Right. So listen, guys, we know that things happen um, and we know that a lot of things have happened. This is a season for things happening, school starting up. You're feeling sure. the pain of expenses with school and fall sports and whatever else you're involved in. And maybe there's a recession coming and maybe we should all panic and pull our money and then, you know, Brandon's children will starve and so will mine. And Times are tough. The people have here, legitimate here's reasons. The thing. Times are tough for everyone. And that includes your folks at the Bookening. And the fact is we made a promise to deliver C.S. Lewis when y'all hit 750. And you did, and then now you haven't. You've hit it twice now, actually, but it keeps dropping down. And we just, I'm sorry, we we need to hold it hostage because we, we need to make that number. $13 is $13. We Give are, us that $13 and we'll go back. Well, Brandon, you're the bad cop, but. Yeah, I don't care. Which is which is fine. <laughs> well, here here's what I actually want to dangle in front of people as a carrot, mm -hmm. which is we really would love to make 
2020 the year of Tolkien. Mm -hmm. We would. And we have a sweet plan for integrating Tolkien into the whole year. Tolkien's unlocked at $1,000 a month. Right. We're having trouble hanging at seven fifty right now, guys. So, um, but look, what's interesting and what's fun is that in all the places where we see you guys engaging with us on C.S. Lewis, everybody <laughs> wants to talk about Tolkien too. Right. And Tolkien ends up taking over some of the conversations that are C.S. Lewis episodes. Yeah, yeah. could it be because inspire. he's better? And yet, well, you know, you <laughs> won't find be? out what we actually think about the that. The answer probably yes, because I mean. Well, you know, Brennan? Don't what? tell them. Don't tell them. They haven't paid for it yet. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. You want to hear if C.S. Lewis conversation on the booking has been thought provoking, interesting, coming from a very different angle and perspective, but enlightening and helpful, challenging, then man, you might really want to hear what we have to say about Tolkien. And you might really want to dig down deep right now and push us forward so that you can hear us finish up Lewis. And uh, hear us make 2020 the year of Tolkien. For my money, and I, I'm sorry if this sounds self-aggrandizing, but for my money, when I when I think of the show in terms of how I would like it when I'm a listener, for, I'm, for my money, the best value that the booking gives is on things like Tolkien, things that people really love, beloved mm-hmm. kind of things that people in our community really like. I think we have good... We have the right take things. on these things. We have the right take, and sometimes we can be a little grumpy or contrarian. <laughs> For my money, we love those things. We love Tolkien. Uh, spoiler alert. We love Tolkien. I think we'll all also be able to approach him with something resembling... Deference? Yeah, I, th- I think we'll be able to be appropriately deferent. Deferent? Is that a word? Deferential Def- is yes, what you want. Sorry. Deferent. I think we will be more deferential with him than we have been with Lewis. I, I think so, but I think we'll be appropriately deferential and we'll be and we'll know when to ask the right questions of him. And if there he- are lots of places to ask questions of Tolkien. One is his use of uh his mysticism around the use of words and language. Yeah, I mean Tolkien I don't know. For example, I'm really looking forward to hearing what we have to say. And I, I say that with uh, I'm not being disingenuous. I don't know what kinds of things are going to come out of my mouth and my heart or Brandon or Jake. We actually haven't spent a ton of time. I think we've all engaged with Tolkien a lot in our lives. But yeah. as I was I, engaging with Tolkien just tonight, I'm coming off strep throat. I was reading him aloud to my kids before I came. And now I'm uh, in pain every time I open my mouth to speak. Um, and yet he's here because, because my he throat loves you is guys. sore. I'm here because I love you guys. And but... you won't give him the money to get to 750. Hey, listen, we just got out of the mines of Moria. Yeah. And, and you, know you know what, what? Jake thinks about cave stories. Yeah, yeah. but you're not going to hear what I think about the mines of Moria. And Because uh, you guys won't give, get us out of the mines of Moria that we're in. Brandon, so. you are playing hardball here. These people, Somebody has to. <laughs> these people are digging deep in their pockets. They are tearing not up their enough. floorboards. Like, But here's the thing that happens. When we make these kinds of appeals, you know what happens? Somebody who's already giving, and probably somebody's already giving 25, 50 bucks and pushing themselves to help support this, this podcast is going to listen to this episode and they're going to think, okay, what's another 10 or 15 I bucks I guess I can do another five, another 10. Another five, another 10. What we want- That hurts instead, our hearts. We want- We don't, every time that happens, I feel bad. What would yeah. really be great is if 13 of you, and there are literally thousands of you out there, we see the numbers- if 13 of you, just 13 of you gave $1 a month, $2 a month, if 10 of you gave $2 a month, if, you know, five of you gave five, a problem is solved. That's not a lot of you when there are thousands of you out there that aren't, get, that aren't supporting the work. And, you know, we get it. We, we make this free for a reason. We want you to listen. We don't want you to feel guilty for listening if you're not giving. But, you know, kind of, maybe. No, we want you to feel a little guilty, appropriately. You're at least guilty enough to leave a review on iTunes or your podcast user of choice. Something uh, close to a hundred reviews. Yeah, we could uh, if you could bump. And by the way, if you do make it to a thousand dollars in the next month, Jake has promised to dress as a swan and blow a trumpet, and in, 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 uh, in, in, <laughs> because he loves E.B. White that much, and uh, Jake Jake, can, Jake associates money with whiteness because he's a racist. Um, but wait, what? When did he do this? If they make, he's just making stuff up. If man. they, if they, if they make us to a thousand dollars by, what are we in right now, Brandon? September. By September, if we make it to a thousand dollars by October third, Jake has promised to dress as a swan mm-hmm. and blow a trumpet. 
People believe me, he would make a beautiful swan. Yeah, and man, does that guy play the trumpet. You haven't heard a trumpet until you've heard Jake in a swan costume play the trumpet. It's amazing. It's amazing. Right, Brandon? It brings us to tears every time. It brings us to tears. I hate you all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. You know, I set a silly goal because there's no way we're going to make it to $1,000 by October 3rd, but people, come on. This silly goal is amazing. Jake in a swan outfit playing the trumpet. (laughs) <laughs> hashtag trumpet of the swan you know what guys um i don't care if it takes a while to get to to lewis or tolkien after all i uh you know it's fine fine and this was jake's idea by the way jake 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 likes to act kind of reticent and humble about these things when he comes up with a great idea he wants yeah. to let everyone take credit for the great ideas that would come up really with. wants to dress as but, a swan yeah this is jake asked me to say this and he said i'm gonna act like you know it's not a big deal to me but really if you could get me an excuse to wear a swan costume play a trumpet i'd be so grateful to you nathan and yeah uh-huh so that's what I'm doing, and Brandon's helping me out. Thank you, Brandon. Jake, thanks you. You're welcome. Brandon's going to dress like the ugly duckling. Yeah, I don't have to dress up at all. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, will you dress as the ugly duckling? <laughs> if we make going to dress like the wart on a toad. Which, yeah, I mean, you know, he won't have yeah, to dress sure, up at all either. I will dress so, as the ugly duckling. Well, I'm, I'm Jake, I'm... That's the wart on a toad? I've gone a little far here, fellas. We were having wow. fun. And um, I can see it. Feel like a line's been crossed. A lion. Uh, I feel like a lion's been crossed. Aslan. Yes, Aslan. He is going to roar and make you guys give us that money. Listen. All right. Fine. Jake will dress as a swan. If you make us to a thousand dollars, but Brandon will dress as an ugly duckling. And sure. Jake, what would you like me to do in public <laughs> with you? Well, the ugly duckling is just a swan. So, so I'm Brandon like will just like your son, right? Yeah. Yeah. My long I will grow up to son. be a beautiful swan one day. Something E.B. White related. You guys want me to dress as... We will all dress as swans. We will go to downtown Bloomington. Whoa. And we will play trumpets. Yeah. Oh, no. I don't, I'm not sure about this. <laughs> all three of us will dress as swans, and we will go to downtown Bloomington. That's right. In front of the courthouse, and we will blow trumpets. That's absolutely right. After marching around it seven times. After marching around it seven times. That is right. That is what we will do if you make it to $1,000. By October 3rd. By October 3rd. And you guys are going to do it. And I hate you for it. You know what? With that big of an incentive, let's make it October 31st. They, they'll never make it, right, guys? You, you'll never make it, no. I mean, that's that's not much time. That's less that's than two, two months, months. Two months. Okay, October 31st, it is. Yeah, yeah. If, if you guys can make it by Halloween, and I mean midnight when it turns to halloween the offers is over yeah like on the day of halloween you cannot do this so basically by midnight at the end of october 30th we must have a thousand dollars or more support on patreon or we will not dress as swans if the support drops below after that we were a little generous with elf elvis but no generosity here no we will dress as swans and we will blow trumpets and march around so if it's 9.99 we will not do it that is absolutely correct yeah and if, if it gets over a thousand and then drops back down before we do it, we nope, won't do it. Not happening. No. If we post to the video and then it drops back down, the video will be taken down. That's right. And yeah. only reposted when we live in a world where we were making more than a thousand dollars. That'll help out a lot. <laughs> Just do it. You <laughs> guys can do it. You can get, get us up there. It's gonna happen. We're gonna have to dress as swans. That would be the greatest problem in the world if that actually happened, but it's not gonna happen. Okay, so guys. We should actually talk about some <coughs> literature in this episode. What? Listen, let's talk about what we're actually doing. And I don't even, I'm not even sure that I'm clear on what we're doing, but let's just go ahead and have this conversation on mic. We announced the Hollow Crown. So yeah. in our little announcement podcast, we had the Hollow Crown series listed. And yeah. that is actually exactly what we plan to do is um, among ourselves, we plan to watch all of both seasons of the hollow crown which comprises the entire henriad mm-hmm. of shakespeare and we're going to talk about those plays question is what does that actually translate in terms in, in terms of episodes for you are we just going to do one episode about the whole darn thing are we going to do an episode per episode of the hollow crown are we going to talk about each play individually how do we want to do this guys you're asking i'm asking what do you think we should do I ask not just... what Shakespeare you should read for your country, but what country you should read for your Shakespeare. England. I had been assuming that each uh, 
play would get its own episode. Brandon, your thoughts? I had been thinking that we would just combine them all into one episode and be done with Shakespeare. Forever? Forever. Forever. We never do another Shakespeare episode. I mean, they we don't never ever go well. You know? <laughs> Brandon, we've done some good Shakespeare episodes. Name one. Foiled, hoisted on my own petard. Yeah, you were. I tried to parry and you thrusted. I did. Well, okay, I've got, I'm, I'm hearing two things. It's like I've got an angel and a dev, devil on my shoulder. I've got Jake saying, do an episode per. I've got Brandon saying, do one episode that comprises the entire thing. Yeah. I don't know that we should do one episode that comprises the entire thing. It's been a while. I've watched the first four, each yeah. of the first four. Richard stands out. The other three... Henry's mushed together. Yeah. Well, I'm a little afraid that the mushed together might mean that we actually only have an episode's worth of things to talk about for the Henry's. I'm maybe a little afraid of that. That's only the first season, though. That's only the first season. Then you got Benedict Cumberbatch doing Richard III, which ought to be fun. You've got, uh, what else is even in that season? So we should tell people if they don't know what this comprises. You got your Richard II. You've got your Henry the Fourth, part mm-hmm. one. Your Henry the Fourth, part two. Your Henry, Henry the Fifth. That's. The first season of The Hollow Crown, which is a BBC-produced Shakespeare movie thingamabobber with lots of famous British actors in it. Very high-quality production, directed by Sam Mendes. You may know him from Road to Perdition, American Beauty, Skyfall, and Spectre. He did a couple James Bond flicks and did a really good job on Skyfall. Not so such a good job on Spectre. I think he was maybe a little burnt out and should have taken the project. Or maybe they had script problems. I don't know what happened with that movie. That movie was a disappointment. But be that as it may... High quality production. And we've always read the play in the past. We've always just said, the play is the thing. And I think we have watched some adaptations, but we've never actually made an episode explicitly about the adaptations. We decided that that was a garbage way to do things, right, fellas? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why did we decide that? One reason is that Shakespeare plays were never <coughs> written to simply be read. They were written to be performed. And so a large part of discussing and dealing with the Shakespeare play as it was meant to be taken as, you know, as interpreted by any number of different people. And we always had more fun anyway, talking about different interpretations of a play than, you know, trying to analyze the play itself as a piece of literature. Yeah, well, this is a little bit of that, like, if, 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 you, if you're trying too hard to get the insights to come, it's not nearly as good as if you just lean back and let the insights come to you. And I think if we talk about the movies, if we start by talking about Benedict Cumberbatch, something kind of low-hanging fruit, it will enable us to then talk about the immortal bard of Stratford-upon-Avon and have some more concrete kind of things to push against and bounce off of, which I am speculating is what's always been one of the problems with our Shakespeare plays, is he's just such a big topic, and he's so hard to talk about. Arguably a very talented writer, Shakespeare. Arguably. And... He can be hard to talk about, you know? Why is to be or not to be such a memorable phrase as opposed to something that old Christopher Marlowe wrote that on the face of it is just as poetical, but nobody remembers. It's hard things to talk about, but if you have specific examples of actors kind of putting some flesh on those bones, I think it'll just give us something more concrete to bounce off of and will enable us not just to talk about the actors, but to talk about the work in question. So we decided to watch The Hollow Crown and that's what we did. And that's what we're going to do. And Jake says, do an episode per episode. And Brandon says... Episode per episode per play. An episode per play. Yes. And Brandon says, smush it all together. You know, what are we talking about? Just the first season? Uh, We were talking about both. So how many episodes are we getting out of this thing? Well, we would do... Eight or nine if we had a context episode. For this entire year, we're doing nine episodes. Nine episodes of Shakespeare if we did... I just want to make sure because I thought... That's a lot. We could break it down and do... Season two next season. Yeah. That would be a good idea. That means we won't be able to get to Richard III, which is actually what we sent our Patreons, or our patrons. <laughs> oh, well, they'll just Next have to year wait. we'll send them Richard II. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. Okay, so, all right, guys. We are going to do Henry IV Part One, Henry IV Part Two, Richard II will actually come first, mm-hmm. and Henry V, we will uh, once more into that breach. Dear friends. All right. What's that sound? It's the airplane going over, indicating. Nope. Baggage check. Yeah, let's it's do it. the guns going Ooh. off, indicating that the contextual Texan has fired them. And the contextual Texan, as you know, that's Brandon. He comes from Texas, and I he do. likes to provide some much-needed context. 
and this will be his fourth time at bat. Providing a little context for Shakespeare, we need, since we are going to tackle at least four plays. Yeah. Brennan? Yeah. With a hail and hearty yeehaw. Yeehaw. With a perfunctory and cursory yeehaw. Yeehaw. There we go. There you go, Nathan. You like that better? Yeah. Give us some Shakespeare context, my friend. Uh, for context, I reference you back to seasons one, two, and three. Boom. There Over. we go. We're done. Kind of like the old wily bard himself would say, yeah. why not read this play about Falstaff? And I'm not going to tell you that much about old Falstaff in this play. Yeah. There we go. We're done. Good. Let's move on. Donor shout outs. All right. Brandon. What, Nathan? I don't feel like we can leave it there. I feel like we need a little Shakespeare context. Do we need a little Shakespeare context? The people are let's, lending you their ears. Let's do it then. All right. All right. Some Shakespeare context. Where to begin? How about where we always begin? With a little bit of bio. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Uh, the immortal bard, he was born in April 23rd. On April 23rd. I think that's the date of my first date with my wife. It could be April 24th. It's two days before my birthday. Nice. You guys are both thousands of years old. Yeah. 1564. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, that's the wrong year. Yeah. Hundreds yeah. of years my old. Bad. Yeah, wrong year for me too. <laughs> and he died on April 23rd, 1616. Wow. So at least it's fun to think he did. Mm-hmm. Um, that dates back to a apparently a clerical error that... Scholars are very fond of, and so they've preserved that clerical error through history, and now people think he was born and he died on the same day. And people also think that Pluto is not a planet, and they think that dinosaurs have feathers, so... Dave. He died in 1616. We also know for a fact, this is going to be awful, me sucking on a lozenge while I talk. Listen, it's just fact of life this time. Just fact of life, guys. I'm not feeling all that great. John Shakespeare was his father. Mary Arden was his mother. Arden Shakespeare's that I love and may have recommended we purchase for our Patreons, named after Mary Arden. Hey, there you go. We forgive you. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can forgive me. Our donors, well, like we said, we've been losing Maybe some support. Maybe not, yeah. Yeah. Well, John Shakespeare, he was a glove maker and also an alderman. An alderman at the time was a councilman within at in the city where he grew up, with, which was Stratford-upon-Avon. All you need is glove. Do, 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 do. Arguably superior poets? Equal poets? Inferior even? The Beatles? Maybe even inferior. Maybe even inferior. Well, maybe. And can we agree probably the best interruption of Brandon that I've ever had? Would everybody agree with that? I think it's a fine interruption. The best little uh, thing that I've inserted (laughs) into a Brandon. Hey, at this this, uh, rate, we're never going to get through this. Glove, glove, (laughs) glove. Do, do, do. Glove, glove, glove. Do, do, do. Glove, glove, glove. It's easy. <laughs> John Shakespeare, he was an alderman and a glove maker. Mm-hmm. All you need is glove. All you need is glove, Nathan. All you need is glove. Right. And all you need is alderman yep. to run your city. Yep. Because that's what it means. He ran the city. He was a councilman. So <laughs> they were, And his mother's name was Mary Arden. She was an, uh, the daughter of an affluent landowning farmer. In other words, the Shakespeare's were prominent people in Stratford-upon-Avon. Prominent enough that we know, or we at least assume, and when I say we, I mean I include myself in the scholarly community. That's what I mean, people. Get over it. All right. You are, in fact, the scholar who's a baller of reading. I am. Uh, William Shakespeare. I don't think you introduced this. (laughs) Did I not? Oh, shoot. (laughs) I think you did. Yeah, because you talked about my shirt. I never. Maybe you just never introduced me. No, the heathered. I I I just didn't say you were the pastor who's a master of reading. Okay. We're good. Well, I don't know. In ca- just in case, Nathan, Brandon, Jake. Scholar who's a baller of reading. Jake's the pastor who's a master of reading. Nathan's the humble, humble and obedient host. host who often forgets to introduce his co-hosts. So, Like twice in 150 episodes. Yeah, that's enough. Speaking of being a good host and inter- doing a good job of introducing your co-hosts, co-hosts yeah. Mm-hmm. Danny McNeely, she did a great job of that. Job she of did. That. I really appreciated the outfit check because I, I know people, when they listen, the primary thing they listen to the booking for is fashion, fashion reports on the people that are doing the podcast. And we're you, fashionable. You know, the other guys. thing that she did, she had an amazing flex in like the first minute of hosting the show. Really? If you listen, in like the first minute of hosting the show, she pops her mouth full of something and just starts eating nice. while she's hosting the show. There That's you go. a pretty intense flex. That's a flex. A bold like, move. 
real, you know who that's I don't real know? swag right mm-hmm. there. You don't know some who swagger I... Swagger and confidence. I imagine I know someone who would have had that same swagger and confidence. Who's that? Shakespeare. <laughs> who... <laughs> Went to the new King's King's New School. <laughs> Such a nice. <laughs> that was a nice transition. segue. Yeah. Thank you. How do you guys feel about segways? You like to drive segways around? I've never tried it. Fun? You know who never got to drive a segway? <laughs> Shakespeare. <laughs> While he was walking to the school that he got to attend for free because his father was an alderman. You'd think oh. that people would have had enough of silly glove songs. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Go back and Look listen around. to episodes one to three. This is not happening, people. No, no, Brandon. What? Brandon, please. Please what? Brandon, I'm sorry that I interrupted. And Jake's no, sorry that he you, interrupted. You know what? You guys do the you you do the context. You tell us about Shakespeare. Brandon, we weren't taking your context section seriously and we should have been, and we apologize. <laughs> you look so sincere, Nathan. Brandon. What? We glove you. Oh, Nathan. Our hearts are full of glove. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as we already established, all we need is glove. All we need is glove. Yeah. All you do. <laughs> That's a t-shirt. All you need is glove. All you need is glove. I'd buy that t-shirt. <laughs> We're going to have a whole- Put a baseball glove on it and sell it. With Shakespeare's face in it. Yeah. That'd be the most confusing T-shirt ever. <laughs> Shakespeare's face in a glove. All you need is a glove. He went to King's New School. Glove gonna... lifts you up where you. But I'm sorry. Go ahead. We think he went to Glove's New School. Mm. <laughs> I did it, guys. Gotcha. <laughs> My work here is done. It's like the ending of a Cheers episode. We're, we can go home now. Okay. What are we talking about? Shakespeare. Uh, Shakespeare glove Somebody something. Say Shakespeare. Yeah. No, go ahead. All right. I. Uh, we think he went to King's New School. Mm-hmm. If he had attended, he probably would have went for free. At this school, they would have learned the basic Latin texts. He would have learned his grammar. He would have learned very simple subjects, and he would have probably been introduced to guys like Plutarch, whose lives would have introduced him to some of the uh, characters that he would later write his tragedies on. We know that he married a woman named Anne Hathaway, not the actress. Not the actress. Not the actress. Now, when he met Plutarch, when he was introduced to Plutarch at he never school, met did they Plutarch. like each other? <laughs> okay. He was 18, and she was 26. Six months after they were married, we know that they had a baby, and it seemed to be a rushed marriage. Uh, Usually there were some rites that they would have read three times, and they only read it, or orders that they would have read three times, they only read it once. Instead of reading it three times, they read it once. Six months later, they have a baby. That's probably why. She was probably pregnant. Shakespeare knocked up Anne Hathaway? Yeah. And then (laughs) her name was Susanna, the daughter. His name was Susanna. And then they had twins named Hamnet. Hamnet? Hamnet, who died at the age of 11. And Judith. And then from about the mid-1580s to the early 1590s is what we call the lost period of Shakespeare's life, until we finally see him mentioned in Robert Greene's Groat's Worth of Wit, where he says, There is an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers, that with his tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide, supposes he is as well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you, (coughs) and being an absolute Johannes factotum, is in his own conceit, the only shake scene in a country. The only shake scene. That's like the, a pun? that was like he was uh that's like his snap snap shenane. Mm-hmm. That was that that was the way they did it back then mm-hmm. by calling you an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers. Okay, so we need to take a step back and understand at the time what the theatrical environment was. You had kind of two different avenues. One, you had. The theater that was the popular theater, and, and at, the, at the time, some innkeepers would encourage theater players to play in front of their uh, inns in order to make some money and cash because people like to come and see these plays. But you had a popular theater, and then you also had a theater that was more of the unit, what was literally would later be classified by a scholar in the 1900s as the University Wits. The University Wits were guys like Christopher Marlowe, Thomas Nash, and guess who else? Robert Greene, the guy who was attacking Shakespeare in this mm. passage. Just so people, uh, just to clarify, this is so people understand where we're at and why I'm mentioning this. This is the first written record we have of Shakespeare. Right. This is Robert Greene attacking this guy named Shakespeare. He's attacking him for being an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers. And so a lot of people think, in a Johannes factotum, which means like a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people think that this is Robert Greene, who was one of the university wits, attacking Shakespeare for trying to dress himself up as though he were the equal to these university graduates. Interesting. And um, why that's interesting is because a lot of the people who want to claim that Shakespeare never wrote Shakespeare's plays 
are taking the same angle that Robert Greene was attacking Shakespeare for here. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can't imagine that a grammar school educated young man could possibly grow up to be Shakespeare. And so they throw out all these wild ideas that it was this Earl of Oxford or that it was Francis Bacon of all people who wrote like the most boring text ever written Mm -hmm. about science. You're like, this guy's going to write Shakespeare's plays? Whatever, I've met scientists before. They're not going to write Shakespeare's plays. (laughs) (laughs) Throwing shade at scientists. I mean, science is great. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, but they're not going to write Shakespeare's plays. That sort of elitism, it's it's fascinating. I find it really interesting that that brand of elitism Mm -hmm. makes it into the conservative arguments. Because a lot of people that make these arguments against Shakespeare, they're very conservative thinkers. Mm -hmm. It's very baffling to me that... This is the angle they take. Yeah, you got Shakespeare truthers on all sides, don't you? That's interesting. Anyways, that's an aside. But this is the mention we have of him, and this is Robert Greene. He's part of these university wits who would have been Oxford graduates at the time. They would have been friends with one another. They were sort of the elitist theater group. Dunn would have kind of been a part of these guys as well, John Dunn, who was a contemporary of Shakespeare. Then to take a further step back and to look at London and what it was at the time. We were in what's often considered to be the golden age of... English history. That's because we were in the reign of the Tudors. And I use that word intentionally because we're looking at the history plays and I'm going to give us a brief rundown of the king, the monarchical, monarchal rule of England. Are you guys excited? I hope mm-hmm. you would. Yeah, we're going to get there though. Mm-hmm. All you need to know right now is that we're in the Tudor reign and that the reigning monarch on the throne is Elizabeth. And she is the representative of the Tudor house at the time. And this has brought unprecedented wealth and security to England. She defeated the Spanish Armada in the famous battle that established her as this sort of almost deistic figure Mm -hmm. that was on the throne. She intentionally presented herself as a goddess. The famous portraits at the time have her white face with that corona surrounding her Mm -hmm. head, you know, and that bright red hair. She wanted to be seen as this, and so she intentionally also then encouraged what was already at the time the courtly traditions of love, of the knights loving the queen, but at that time she would have been the wife of a king. Here she was the goddess queen, and so this kind of changed the court system again. And so you would have guys like Philip Sidney writing some of his sonnets to Queen Elizabeth. You would have Dunn writing some of his poems as well to Queen Elizabeth. And it would change, obviously, the tone of these poems because they were now not just writing to the wife of a king, but to the the queen king, Mm -hmm. queen slash king. And so it was a very different time tone-wise in the courts of England and the sort of courtly expectations that were there. This would have been more the environment that the university wits would have been a part of, this courtly tradition, these ideas of love, these ideas of uh, wit and humor, elevated speech that would have been part of Queen Elizabeth's court. And of course, then they see this guy who has obvious genius come and he's making lots of money and he's a success. And I can't imagine being Christopher Marlowe or Robert Greene or Thomas Nash and going to see a Shakespeare play and not being jealous. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you ever watched a Christopher Marlowe play, they're fine, but they're not Shakespeare. And it's really hard to put your finger on it. And we've ran into this a lot. But um, have you ever seen the movie Amadeus? Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that kind of captures probably what these guys were going through, I have mm-hmm. to imagine. Solieri syndrome. Yeah. This refined, trained artist confronting real talent and we're just raw genius. More like Robert Green with envy. Yeah. And that world of the, the courtly world would be of, in, is of some interest in understanding Shakespeare. And we'll get there in a minute. But then there's another aspect England that we have to consider. And that's the fact that England was growing economically. It doesn't mean that everybody was rich. There was still one-third of the population that lived in poverty. But you had a growing merchant class because of trades with India, because of all these other things that were happening, because of the dominance of the English Navy that allowed for a middle class who had money to spare. Now, you still had the censorship of the city, the mayor, and what could be allowed inside of London proper was very limited. The university wits could get away with certain things because, you know, they weren't a part of the end crowd. The others had to go across the Thames and start some of their theaters over there. And so in about the late 1500s, after Shakespeare had already, the late, so 1599, after he had already had an established career as a poet, I mean, this was in his late second period, we know that the Globe was started with some, with a group of other, of other playwrights. And so they established the Globe Theater and it became a huge success. In fact, 
so much that in 1608, they were also able to take uh, over Blackfriars Indoor Theater, and so they were like a network of playhouses. But these were all across the Thames, and people would have to go across the Thames to go and see these plays because these were not as heavily censored as the playhouses in London proper. And so you would go over to the Globe, and it's really fun to see old pictures of the Globe the way it was, because when people think of a Shakespeare play, and when I'm talking to students about Shakespeare, I always ask them, what do you think when you think of a Shakespeare play? They always think of like Shakespeare in the Park, or they think of going to like a playhouse like we have today, where everybody's in a suit and tie, and you're sitting down and you're watching a Shakespeare play. And that's absolutely nothing like what it would have been like to actually have seen a Shakespeare play at the time. What it would have been like is you would have went in, there was a stage in the middle, there was um, like a semicircle, but an extended semicircle, where all the poorer class who couldn't afford the box seats, they would be down there and they could literally like put their hands on the stage and they would be yelling and it would be loud and rowdy because people would be going there to have a good time also to, as well as see a play. In between acts, even in tragedies, you would have like men come out dressed as women to do jigs and stuff on the stage. It's just nothing like we expect a Shakespearean play to be today and to be presented to us today. It was a good time at the theater. A good time was had by all. Yeah. So we have London. We kind of know the environment of London. I mean, you also keep in mind that it's not everything, not everything's perfect. You have the Black Plague that still pops up now and then in 1609. There's an outbreak. So, but in general, this is the golden period because the throne is secure. You have this goddess queen on the throne who has protected people from the Spanish Armada. And she has this court of love that surrounds her. You have the university wits. It's like you, if Hillary Clinton would have been elected. Yeah. All right. And so here, this is where we're at. And then Shakespeare, he comes, we know that he eventually comes from Stratford-upon-Avon. He enters into this rowdy, dangerous, th- the city was filthy at the time. You would have had, there was no sanitation. I mean, it, it wasn't the safest place to live, but it was still the heart of this growing empire. And he came there and he made his, he made his name and he made his mark and he became very wealthy. And by 1614, um, he retired. He went back to Stratford-upon-Avon, became a successful landowner. And we think that in 1616, died because he drank too much at Ben Johnson's uh, wedding that he was throwing for his daughter. We don't really know, but it's, just a, it's a tradition, and traditions are fun, that Shakespeare drank too much at the, at the wedding for Ben Johnson's daughter. He didn't die of alcohol poisoning, but he fell. He, yeah. And so he died. Fell and hit his head. Yeah, a couple days later, and or maybe the following day, and that was it for Shakespeare. <laughs> if people don't know, Ben Johnson was also another famous playwright, not a part of the University Wits, but just another man who had made his name. What's in a name? What's in a name? We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> was that question never answered? I don't think it was. What, the other fun what, fact. What a, what a dispute. What? So, that, by the way. What? I don't know a ro- that a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. You're saying that if a rose was called a garbage minion truffle... It wouldn't smell as sweet. Truffle pop. Truffle pop. You wouldn't stop and smell the garbage minion truffle pops? (laughs) It would color the way that I... You wouldn't read in the name of the garbage minion truffle pop? Right. You wouldn't sing low how a garbage minion truffle pop death... Air blooming. Air blooming? Yeah, that's right. Brendan, your thoughts? I think Jake's right. I think words matter. (laughs) I think names matter. <laughs> I do think a rose by any other name would not smell as sweet. Technically not true. It would still smell the same. But you might think about it differently. You would think about it differently. And you have to keep in mind that Shakespeare's not a dummy. And that's those words are coming from the mouth of a 13-year-old girl. Are you supposed to take that as absolute truth? I don't know. But spoiler alert, we're going to do Romeo and Juliet next grief, year. people. Yeah. All these quotes that people say as though they're like deep wisdom. Shakespeare was putting in the mouth of a 13-year-old girl. And Shakespeare knew what he was doing. You know what the best Louis example? later made kill herself. She did. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, maybe Shakespeare isn't expecting us to take everything that Juliet says as gospel truth. You know, you know what the best example of what you're talking about is, is uh, the speech that, is it Polonius? Is that his name? He gives that whole speech to thine own, self, thine be own true. self be true. And he's yeah. a moron who dies a moron's death. Yeah. In Hamlet, but everybody always quotes that speech as if we're supposed to take those little pearls of wisdom. And there's some good pearls of wisdom, but I mean. Yeah, but it's people for, people lose all discernment and ability to understand literature. Mm-hmm. And the way literature works is through character and tension. Mm-hmm. And this is what I continually try to drive into students' heads. Like, mm-hmm. who cares if the author wrote that? If the character who's saying it is not a trustworthy character, you have to trust that the author knew what they were doing. Right. 
So anyways. A little trust, a little deference for to greatness, people. Yeah. Okay. That one was for free. All right. Where were we? Oh, his death. And so the other fun but, fact. But go be ahead. honest. Sometimes yeah. Shakespeare would just put any pearl of wisdom that sounded good in anybody's mouth. I think that's true as well. If he had a great speech, it didn't matter. You if could the have... occasion was right, he'd give it to the biggest idiot in the on stage. Yeah. Good think... example of that is the fool in Lear. Right. So I now think... that I've just undermined our entire point. No. Both are true, listener. Both are true. What Brandon said was correct. What Jake said was correct. Everyone gets a new car. Go ahead, Brandon. I'm so sad right now. Why? Because okay. Jake, Jake under Jake, everything I just said. Pulled the rug out from under you. And then <laughs> but, all right, you in so the Shakespeare's shins. dead. <laughs> the other th- important thing that happens after his death is that in 1623, his friends Hemmings and Condal, who had been a part of his acting troupe, compiled all of his plays into a definitive edition. And so that means we need to take another step back and look at the publication history of Shakespeare. So we're taking all these little steps back. So we mm-hmm. get to him getting to London. We took a step back. We looked at the history of London, how we got there. Now we're taking another step back. You see what we're doing, Nathan? I hope we don't fall into the Thames. <laughs> I hope we don't either. But we're trying to do this in a new way. We yeah. haven't done it this way before, and I'm trying to add a different flavor. Yep. Okay. And I think it's working so far. I'm a fan, Brandon. <laughs> okay. To- Brandon? Yeah. To thine own self be true. Okay, I will be true, Nathan. In the mid-1590s, Shakespeare's plays began to appear in publication in what were called quarto editions. And all this this were like cheaper ways to publish things. And so a good way to imagine it is if you take a sheet of paper and you fold it in half, you now have four pages. That's called a folio. If you take a sheet of paper and you fold it in half and then you fold it in half again, you now have eight pages, and that's called the quarto edition. And so it was a cheaper way to publish books and plays, and often Shakespeare's plays in the 1590s would appear in publication form as a quarto edition. This meant that there were some good quality publications of his plays, but there were also some bad quality publications of his plays and some that were just hearsay. So basically, it would literally be, basically literally, it would be a person going to listen to a Shakespeare play and then going back and trying to, as best as they could remember, Write down that Shakespeare play. Write it. It'd be the equivalent of someone going, yeah, write it. It'd be the equivalent of someone going to watch Endgame mm-hmm. and then going back home and trying to write an Endgame script and then publishing that. <laughs> that is what some of these bad quarto editions were. And so there were corrupted Shakespeare editions out there. Uh, the other fun thing about the Shakespeare publication history is that he was always changing his plays. <laughs> and so if you get a good edition of a Shakespeare play, like maybe uh, the Pelican editions we sent out to mm-hmm. people, or the Arden editions, they're always going to be looking at various quarto editions of Shakespeare. And what that means is that we have all these various renditions of his plays, where he would be cutting speeches, he would be adding text. Maybe one of the most famous examples of this is in uh, The Taming of the Screw. I read it recently with a group of people, and I had forgotten up to that point that it's actually a play within a play. There are whole small scenes that often get left out of the play that are in other small quarto editions that you can either add in or not add in. And sometimes Shakespeare would add, sometimes Shakespeare would not add. And it's fun to realize that his plays were living because if you remember what we talked about, he had the Globe Theater, he was a businessman, and he was writing to entertain people. And that meant that his plays would change and shift based on audience, based on his preference. He was an actor in a lot of his plays. He also acted in his friends Ben Johnson's plays and some of his other friends' plays. So he knew what needed to happen for the audience. He was spontaneous, as far as we can tell, and he would change things. And which is fascinating because you have these Shakespearean plays, which we all think are like these diamonds that never will change. And yet for Shakespeare, that wasn't the case. They were adaptable. I find that fascinating. And it's one of the, I think, yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting things about Shakespeare in this period is that his plays, they weren't set in stone. They changed. And we have all these quarto editions. Some of them are false. Some of them we know are false, but some of them we know were actually productions that Shakespeare would have acted and they're different from each other. So we have that complicated history, but then in 1623, we have what's called the folio, the first folio edition. And that's when Hemmings and Condal, his friends, and who had worked with him in the Globe Theater, (laughs) took his plays and they compiled them into a book, a respectable folio edition that was like a bestseller. And this was one of the first instances or first suggestions that Shakespeare would go on to be remembered was because he's friends and we have a lot to thank Kimmings and Condal for because if they hadn't done this, we wouldn't have at least some of the Shakespeare plays that we have today. 
The only, one other thing to mention is just a, a historical fact. Shakespeare, he was a part of a group of plays, a group of actors called the Lord Chamberlain's Men. These would have been the group of actors who performed before Queen Elizabeth. And when she died in 1603, <laughs> not 1613, when she died in 1603 and John I took the throne, they changed their name to the King's Men. Mm. And that's because they were now, because King John I, he chartered them as well. So they had been chartered by Queen Elizabeth. They would actually perform at some of her um, masks. A mask was just a very formal theatrical performance, but Queen Elizabeth would come to some of these. They would be invited by lords and some like early instances of like Pemberley Hall to put on performances and the queen would come and they would watch. You had famous set designer um, who would go and he would put these elaborate sets and Shakespeare, I think, worked with him some, especially for the queen. And so he had this double life. He was popular with the queen. He was patronized by the queen, but then he was also the owner of this Globe Theater and his plays came out in these quarto editions that were then compiled in this folio after his death. And then he became known as the immortal bard. And what have you done with your life? Okay, so I think that's enough about his life. Kind of the last thing I wanted to do, which is just fun. Well, first, we can talk briefly just about what what are considered like the three periods within Shakespeare's plays. And the first period would have included a few of the plays. I'm not sure we're going to actually get to them based on our new division of things. But Richard III and the three Henry VI's would have been the very first plays we think that Shakespeare wrote. Interesting. It would have been his way of ingratiating himself to the Tudor throne, to Queen Elizabeth, and with his historical plays, but they would have been the first, what we call the historical plays. And so you have three different types of plays for Shakespeare. You have the historical plays, and he started with Richard II and the three, or sorry, Richard III and the three Henry VI. We think those were his first plays. <laughs> they would have been based on a guy named Raphael Hollinshed, who in 1587 wrote the Chronicles of England, Scotland, and Ireland. So Hollinshed's Chronicles would have been the basis of the facts and information Shakespeare drew from to draw these plays. These plays are not really historically accurate. As far as we know, Henry, is it Henry V who's a playboy? He's, oh, in, the, in, yeah. the, in Shakespeare. You mean. In the Shakespeare yeah, yeah, yeah. plays. As far as we know, Henry V really wasn't a playboy. And my understanding is that the Richard that we have in Richard III is a smear job that the real Richard yeah. Whatever else he was, wasn't a deformed monster. Exactly. It's but like you have that. to keep in mind the fact that these plays were being performed in front of Elizabeth I. Right. And she was part of the Tudor throne. And so what he wanted to do was establish the necessity of the Tudor throne to bring order to the chaos that had come before it. And so there's a lot of political self-serving that's happening in these plays. In his attempt to mythologize and set up an excuse for the throne. It would be very, it would be equivalent to Nathan becoming a famous playwright and trying to write a history of the presidents of America that proved why the Trump Trump presidency was necessary to really bring order back to making America great. Sounds great. Let's make this happen. Yeah. And so, I mean, people have to realize that is what's going on here. These aren't historically perfectly accurate, but they do follow the loose chain of history for England. Right. And so... We have Richard II and the Henry VI that were part of his first period. The other, Some of the other plays you would have had in that period would have been The Comedy of Errors, Taming of the Shrew, Two Gentlemen of Verona, some of his lighter comedies. We also have Titus Andronicus, which really is kind of the outlier. <laughs> the <there>. lightest of comedies. <laughs> then we have, his more, we have his period where he's becoming more mature, he's becoming more sophisticated. You have A Midsummer's Night Dream, Merchant of Venice, Much Ado About Nothing is in that period, and also As You Like It. And you kind of feel the tone similar there. Richard II would have also been in this period. Interesting. Highly lyrical play and a really fascinating play. We're going to talk about it with uh, Ben Whitshaw. Is that his name? Yeah. That's... His performance of Richard II. But it is a very... Awesome. <laughs> it's interesting to note about Richard II is it's one of his only plays that's completely lyrical, meaning that it doesn't really have much prose. Hmm. It's almost written all in poetic line, uh, meter. During the same period, and it fits, you can kind of feel the tone. What I like about this is you kind of feel how they all fit together. Right. The Henry's, the fourths and Henry V are going these periods as well. And then you have Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar. And then you have his later period. You have his, uh, his problem plays, which the problem plays are the plays that they're ambiguous. We don't really know. Are they supposed to be comedy or are they supposed to be tragedy? Measure for measure, Troilus and Cressida, and all that's well, all well, all's well that ends well are famous examples of this. But we get to then his last period where he writes his great tragedies. Mm-hmm. And that's th- and also his great, I think, one of his greatest plays, The Tempest. I love The Tempest. 
But you get Macbeth, you get King Lear, you get Othello, and you get Hamlet. You also get Antony and Cleopatra. And then you finally, you get uh, Henry VIII in this period as well, which is one of the few plays that we know for a fact that he co-wrote with another author. Interesting. So that's kind of the history of where these fit structurally into his uh, history as a playwright. And so as we read these plays, it'll be interesting to see, you know, do we see the immaturity in Richard III and the Henry VI's that are not in Henry IV's and V's and Richard II? And do we see any sort of maturity in Henry VIII, even though that is a play that he wrote with another author? Hmm. But none of these histor- history plays are really going to be a part of his mature period. Right. Um, up to this point, what have we've done? We've done Midsummer's Night's Dream. We've done Midsummer's Night's Dream for some reason. And but both Macbeth and Lear, Lear, of course. Both Macbeth and Lear fall into his mature. Right. This is this is his Bleak House period. Right. When he's at the height of his craft. Yes. Writing the best he was ever going to write. Right. <laughs> So the last thing I want to do is just quickly give a history of the Kings of England before we dive mm-hmm. into these history plays. Basically, what you need to know is that there was the House of Plantagenet, a Plantagenet, 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 Plantagenet. Good grief. It shouldn't be so hard. And it kind of starts with Richard the, Henry III. It really wasn't established until later, but people, what do they call it when you put something back on the past? anachronistically mm-hmm. place the term Plantagenet on these older houses of England. But this is going to stretch all the way from Henry III in 1216 all the way up to and through the War of the Roses. Mm. What the name Plantagenet is, it's, it comes from a Richard of York who adopted it as his family name in the 15th century, and then they just read it back onto these older houses. But they were all seen as kind of the same house coming from a French man named Geoffrey Plantagenet. And that's where it comes from. I'm just saying this because I'm sure people have heard the term Plantagenet before. Mm-hmm. And it establishes and defines this history of the throne. And where we pick up is kind of at the end of the Hundred Years' War with Richard II. With Richard II. And so he would have come after, uh, towards the end of this house. <laughs> and after his defeat, you would have had the rise of the House of Lancaster, who was one of what's called the cadet houses. The Plantagenet would have had cadet houses, which literally just meant you had two sub-princelings who weren't like direct heirs to the throne who then started their own houses that didn't war, then warred for the throne. And so you had the House of Lancaster and you had the House of York. Of course. And the Houses of Lancaster and York would have been the heart of the War of the Roses. Mm. And so what these history plays are based on is they're based on the War of the Roses. So you get Henry IV after Richard II, you get Henry V, and you get Henry VI. And then you have the House of York briefly take over with Edward IV. Then Henry VI takes back over with the House of Lancaster restored. Then you have the House of York restored with Edward IV, Edward V, and then finally Richard III, the hunchbacked monster who caused the end of the House of York and the end of the Plantagenet rule. Mm. Now, why Shakespeare focused on this period of history is because the House of York was a lot of infighting between these two houses who should not have been fighting, and it caused a lot of instability in England, and it caused a lot of chaos, and this was a bad period of history. You had right before this the Black Death and the Plague, and you had the Hundred Years' War, and there was a lot of instability, and guess who came right after Richard III was the House of Tudor, Mm. and this would have been Queen Elizabeth's house. And so with that, you had Henry VII, and then you had Henry VIII, which we do have a play on him, and you have some brief turmoil, but finally you get Elizabeth I, who's the monarch who kind of establishes Tudor authority. And so these early plays we're going to be looking at here, we, one thing we should be watching is how is Shakespeare trying to show the instability in England and excuse and praise and it sometimes also critique the Tudor power that would come after these and the ways that, and the sort of sacrifices that had to be made to get there. All right. Does it make sense? Absolutely. That's all I have to say about Shakespeare. All right. Well, I've got some donors we need to shout out. Jake, why don't you just say the name of the donor? And then Brandon, I want you to make a glove-related pun about these these patrons. By the way, Shakespeare, when his father plied his trade upon him, what was he? I don't know. What? Shakespeare in glove! Stand in the place where you live. Now face. Can I say the names of the donors and you make the glove-related pun? Sure. Jake doesn't seem like he wants to say anything. Jake's sick. You want to go, Jake? Yeah, I want to go. All right. right. We love you. Bye, Jake. Bye, Jake. Bye. -bye. Love you guys. Say something to our donors. (laughs)
Love you guys. Thanks for supporting us. Yes. Okay. And we're me and Brandon are gonna shout them out. Yeah. Real quick. And Brandon, you're gonna say them, and then I guess I have to make a glove-related pun. That sounds really hard. Yeah, you were gonna make me do it. <laughs> All right, you ready, Nathan? Yes, sir. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Well, now that one's easy. They'd be Robert and Rhonda the Glovebirds, wouldn't they? Yeah, I guess they would, Nathan. They are full Anthony Dodger. Well, he's got art. Yeah. Old Art Garfunkel sang a song. Uh-huh. And that song was a song that he sang with Simon and Garfunkel. Uh-huh. Me and Julio down by the schoolyard. Me and they were and... probably playing baseball in which they would have had to wear gloves. They would have had to wear gloves. That's right. See? There we go. Little Anthony's out. Cigar Store. <laughs> Little Anthony's Cigar Store. You, he probably wears gloves when he handles rare cigars. Yeah, because you don't want to smell like a cigar. Mm-hmm. The Immortal Chelsea E. The Immortal Chelsea E. Eep. She left her gloves at home. Jimmy Beam and Little Lady Oakley. <laughs> Jimmy Beam probably drinks Jimmy Beam to keep his fingers warm. Yeah. Uh, because he doesn't have any gloves. Yeah. There we go. Lily of the Valley. <laughs> I feel like you're a really harsh, harsh <laughs> critic. I feel like uh, I, I feel like I'm a nicer. Well, that's why I'm not the humble and obedient host. Neither. Yeah, I, don't, I shouldn't have let you steal my. All right, go ahead. Lily of the Valley. She wears kid gloves because lilies are very soft. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Andrew and Esther the Lovebirds. Uh, they can't help falling in glove with each other. Oh, boy. The Keith Master. The Keith Master. I will always glove him. Me too. <laughs> David's Mighty Men Trucking. Well, <laughs> David's Mighty Men Trucking, they understand a crazy little thing called glove. Yeah, they do. John and Jill and the little baby Max. Uh, John and Jill and little baby Max. Jill gloves John, yeah, yeah, yeah. She gloves John, yeah, yeah. And with a glove like that. Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese and also C.S. Lewis and I think the that crazy, that crazy, crazy book. What's yes. that crazy, crazy book called? Uh, Till We Have Faces. <laughs> More like I cover my face with my glove because <laughs> I don't want it. <laughs> Absolutely right. Got him. Whoa. Beth, the beloved mother of death. Uh, she really didn't like that name. So she is now dubbed Beth, the beloved mother of life. Beth, the beloved mother of life. And uh, how about Beth, the beloved mother of all things living? How about Beth, the beloved Glover of all things living? Like, Don, like Danny Glover? Like Danny Glover. Yeah. Yeah. Console Prime Adam. Console Prime <laughs> Adam. Well, consoles are like gloves. You put things in them. <laughs> Couldn't have made a more simple mental leap myself. Galactic Princess Emily. Galactic Princess Emily. Well, she understands that glove hurts, glove scars, glove wounds, and Mars. Yeah, Jeremy, the dark hooded <laughs> lord of death, and dark prince bear and princess bug of death, doom die. <laughs> death, doom die. Uh, they just want to know what what's glove got to do with it. What does glove have to do with it? Whoa, huh? It's like war. It has absolutely nothing. Yeah. All right. Who's next? So Nathan, not Nathan. Dun 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 dun. Bleeding glove. Maya. Maya. Hello. I glove you. Won't you tell me your name? Ryan, the Red Avenger, and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Well. Danny, the dude. Glove me tender, glove me do, all my gloves. DJ Sammy G, wicka wicka. Of course, he's got some California gloving. Of course he does. He's from California. He's from California. Benny and Dana Tiberius. They... We'll glove you and glove you forever. They'll glove you and glove you. They'll say a little prayer for you. Yeah, they will. Uh, Professor and Lady X. Oh, Prof- wait, we missed Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds. Oh, of course. Eric and Catherine the... Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds. Professor and Lady X. Professor and Lady X. I don't know how to glove him. Dylan, the death dealer of doom, or Lavender's blue, Dylan, Dylan. Ah, Lavender. The ladies came up with that last. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan. Lavender's blue. Lavender's green. Something, Dylan, Dylan. I glove you, too. We glove you, Dylan, whether you like it or not. We glove you, Dylan, whether you like it or not. Miriam. 
Uh, oh, Miriam is new. She's new. This is our last donor? Nathan Drumroll. Give yes. us that nickname. Brandon, I'm going to do. let you have the honor because that's how much I love you, baby. Oh. Because you gave us money during the C.S. Lewis incentive, mm-hmm. you are Merichip. Merichip, combining the greatest mouse with one of our greatest patrons. That's right. And Merichip, you need an awesome song. The Four Gloves. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. The Allegory of Glove. <laughs> the Allegory of Glove. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. Booking in today, written and produced by mostly Brandon, really, honestly. He did a great context. I made some fantastic love puns. You did. And Jake got sick and left. He did. <laughs> so, guys, we had to do these every week, uh, you know. But we love you, and we appreciate your support. Go to patreon.com forward slash the bookening. And it's like I always say, <laughs> sometimes all I need is the breathe and to glove you. You do sometimes say that. That's <laughs> one, one of my catchphrases for sure. Bye everybody! Love you. Love you.